Welcome to the JMD podcast. To my knowledge, the only podcast dedicated to inherited metabolic disease. I'm James Nurse, a UK-based paediatrician and the social media editor at The Journal, and every fortnight I invite authors to take me through their work and put back some of the colour that may have been lost in the edit. We're approaching our 100th episode, so there's plenty for you to have a listen to, so be sure to check out the back catalogue, but not before listening to this latest episode on CAD deficiency. Hello there. It's always a pleasure to learn about new IMDs or IMDs that are new to me at any rate. And in that vein, it's delightful to be talking about the recent paper, Beyond Genetics, CAD Deficiency. And to do that, I'm welcoming back two past guests and another who's been on my most wanted list for quite some time. Returning, I have Dr. Santiago Ramon Marquez of the Structure of Macromolecular Targets Unit in Valencia, and Dr. Hud Fries of the Human Genetics Program, Sanford Burnham Previs Medical Discovery Institute in California. And joining us for the first time, I have Dr. Saskia Wartman, who is affiliated with the University Children's Hospital in Salzburg and Amalia Children's Hospital in Nijmegen. Saskia, welcome to the podcast. Santiago and Hud, welcome back. Thank you very much, James. Hi, James. Thanks. Good to be back here. So, um, before we move on to the bulk of the paper, can we talk briefly about CAD deficiency? It's a treatable IMD, but I must confess, I've never heard of it. What do I need to know? I think the most important thing to know is that it is a treatable condition and it's a very serious neurological disease. The patients present with a developmental delay and then develop a therapy refractory epilepsy, often going into status epilepticus and then going into regression. So losing their skills, losing their conscious level. And with the treatment with uridine, you can reverse this. So we see that if these patients get uridine or uridine monophosphate or another uridine source, you can immediately stop the seizures or in other cases, the seizure medication can be tapered down a lot. And we also saw a lot of cases, and not only we, they are also published, that patients regain the skills that they have lost. And that's something that's really important for people to recognize, isn't it? This is a very treatable type of epilepsy. I think what is very important is that we always have cut deficiency in our differential diagnosis when we see a child with epilepsy, because it's a treatable epilepsy. And as uridine is a compound which is all around in our food and which we all have in our metabolism, there is no risk if you supplement a patient with uridine. So for me, it is very important to say to our audience, think about it. And if you have the suspicion of cut deficiency, and this can only be epilepsy, then give it until you have the genetic results. I mean, we know about giving biotin or pyridoxine for small babies. Are these patients going to turn up in the neonatal period or what other clues are we going to get to suspect CAD deficiency? Most of the patients that we know are much older. So we know about patients presenting in the neonatal time, but most of the patients present when they are a little older. And interestingly, uridine is low in breastfeeding, but fortified in all formula feedings. So what we saw in one of the first patients we described, one of the breastfeeding patients, she presented very early at the age of six or seven months. And another patient that got formula only presented much later. So it seems that if you 
get enough uridine by a rich source so ever, it can prevent the onset of disease. One thing that can help is that you need uridine for the maturation of your red blood cells. So we often see anemia in these patients, and specifically, it's called anisopoikilocytosis. This is something you do not see in an automatic blood count, but you need to do a blood smear. But this can be a marker into the right direction. So we've epilepsy, developmental regression, even anemia. This is a multi-system disorder. What's behind it all? What's, what's going on inside the body? Well, James, there are many diseases, as you know, related to the to defects in the metabolism of pyrimidines and other nucleotides. And CAP plays a crucial role in these type of processes. So for many years, there was no disease associated with CAP. And we all felt that maybe the reason was that CAD is so important that any variant that could compromise its activity was going to be lethal. So it was a great surprise in 2015 when Hudson published the first case of a child with biallelic variants in CAD. But until that moment, that was in 2015, we had no clue about CAD deficiency at all. Yeah, this was in collaboration with the NIH. We found the first CAD patient and... We were able to do this because of some of the, the clinical presentations, but also a suggestion that there was somehow a mistake in glycosylation. It wasn't strong, but there was still some evidence for it. So we were able to collaborate with them. And fortunately, there had been a CAD knockout mammalian cell line that we had access to. So we suspected that it would be a deficiency in the UDP sugars. And when we analyzed the patient cells and compared that to the CAD knockout, we could see there was a, a deficiency of several of the UDP sugars. But if we gave uridine, we could correct it. Yeah, finally, it seems to be a, a CDG disorder. The deficiency is in a multi-enzyme complex in the CAD complex, which is a multimer combining four enzymatic reactions. At the beginning of uridine monophosphate UMP biosynthesis. And if you lack this enzyme, you finally lack uridine monophosphate. And the treatment we used and which has been shown to be very effective is uh, that we give uridine, which is then converted to UMP and then used for many, many different reactions, encompassing. RNA and DNA metabolism, protein glycosylation, and lipid and polysaccharide biosynthesis. Well, it's been a while, but it feels like we're back with glycosylation again. Yeah. So we've got this condition that is potentially treatable. And obviously, once we can treat a condition, prompt and efficient diagnostics are imperative. I mean, is CAD something that we will find on a simple metabolic screen, or is it more complicated than that? What is very tricky about cut deficiency is that you will not find it on our normal metabolic screening because we do not know a biomarker yet. Yeah, it, it would be great uh, because the only thing that we had was sort of a complicated radioactivity-based assay. I mean, how do you go from there? You've got a high index of suspicion of a disease. You think you know what's going on. How did we then start offering the diagnostic test to, to other people or for the next case that comes after? So there are more than 1,000 variants of CAD in the population. So uh, it's very likely that when you 
get sequencing data from a patient, you're going to see variants in CAT and we have no clue if they are pathogenic or they are benign. So we were absolutely lost. So we needed to set up some sort of functional assay to try to find out about the disease causing potential of these variants. I just want to follow up with my point why this has been so important what Santi has done. Because even though we had an assay that could sort of work, it wasn't robust enough. And we realized that even sometimes with patients that were coming in that had all the right clinical presentations, that even there, our assay wasn't doing all that well. It worked great for knockouts versus full activity. But if you were perhaps on the borderline, mm, it was it was not going to work out very well. And so we didn't know what we would do because we had all of these physicians contacting us. You know, of course, the hope of a therapy is going to excite any physician to come forward. And it was just about that time that Santi knocked on our door and we got very lucky. Well, I think it was a very funny moment because I had spent 10 years trying to find out how CAD was working. And what Hudson wanted to know is if these variants made it stop working. <laughs> so um, so he gave me five variants and it took me like a year to get all the biochemical data, structural data, this is what we do in the lab. We do structural biology. By the time we had an answer, it was already too late for some of the patients, right? So we decided we had to do something better. And we had the tool because we were studying how CAT was located in the cell. And for that, we had generated the first human cell line that was knockout for CAT. We used the CRISPR-Cas system and we knock out CAT. So these cells were like a, a cellular model of the disease. The cells were only were able to survive and proliferate if we provide uridine, just like the children. So now we use this cell line, this cat knockout cell line, we could try to rescue the phenotype, introducing the variant found in the children. And this is how the whole thing started. So it's a very simple proliferation assay that we can do in one month. And then if the cells are able to proliferate, then we know that the variant is not affecting the activity of CAD and therefore is not pathogenic. So if I understand this right, you've got potentially a thousand different genetic variants. You've obviously got a team who've done some form of genomic analysis, have found their variant in a child that has a potential clinical phenotype. And they come to you saying, is this variant the cause of the problem that we've found? So what, what would you actually do? So what we actually do is we have human cat clone in a plasmid. It's attached to the green fluorescent protein. And then we do mutagenesis in the plasmid. We introduce the variant found in the child. And now we transfect our knockout cells. We can see that the protein is produced because it's green, it's fluorescent. And now what we do to these cells is we remove the supplement of uridine. And then we track the growth of the cells for one week. If the cells proliferate, that means that they are able to survive without the supplement of uridine. That means that the synthetic pathway of pyrimidine synthesis is working. That means that CAD is functional. And therefore, that the variant that we have introduced is compatible with CAD activity. Otherwise, if we introduce a variant that is pathogenic, CAD will not be active and the cells cannot survive without uridine in the media. So if you use these human CAD knockout cells, which is the starting point, 
and you complement them with the wild type, they don't need uridine to grow. If you use one of the variant forms and they grow even in the absence of uridine, that means that that mutation was not pathological. On the other hand, if you put that variant into the cell line and it doesn't make any difference, the cells still can't grow, and you know the transfection was efficient, then you say that is a damaging pathological variant. This sounds like you're making a lot of progress with this disorder, and it's obviously wonderful to hear of such an effective treatment. I presume the issues around regulatory approval to allow access have been resolved, or is that still an ongoing? You're making faces. That makes me worry that's still an ongoing issue. Yeah. Now, there is a triacetyluridine, which is much more effective than uridine by itself. And the reason is because it's just able to, to have access to the cells. So if you take that orally, that can actually be a therapy. However, there is a drug called, I think it's exuridin, which is not used for CAD. It's used for another disorder. And that could be used off-label for CAD. However, because it's not approved, insurance wouldn't cover it. It's very expensive. Now, um, Saskia has also given uridine phosphate, and that actually seems to work. But I suspect what happens is that the phosphate is cleaved, the uridine then by itself goes into the cells. That's my thought. So you have families who are desperate, who think they might have a child you know, with a CAD deficiency. They're willing to try anything. They see the insurance blocks. They see Amazon. And you can buy triacetylurinine, for better or worse. And, you know, it seems to me it's our responsibility with the science that we have to be able to forecast whether those variants that those individuals have are going to be damaging or not. And therefore, would uridine or triacetylurinine actually be beneficial? So it's about managing patients' and parents' expectations. And I think that's interesting because we've we've talked recently in a different podcast around trying to provide drugs under socially responsible terms. And I'm hoping there's a forthcoming podcast on medicines or foods and, and how we manage the regulation around those. So this is it's not unique to this disorder, but it's a, a challenge any which way we look at it. Are there other things left to understand about CAD deficiency? Or have you guys got it all wrapped up now? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about the limitations of our, our assay. Our assay is not perfect, but it's the best that we have. So the, the, the problem that we might face is that when we introduce the variant in the cells, we overproduce the protein beyond the physiological levels. So there could be a case in which CAD is affected, but this, this defect is masked by the fact that we are overproducing the protein in the cell. So I think we have to work on, on improving this system by reducing the, the expression levels of a protein. And this, is, this is something that soon we will be able to do. Yeah, I, I think that's very important. You know, the ones that are clearly damaging, that's not a problem. But the problem could be is if we say something is benign, but it really is pathological, that would change the treatment course. So that's, that's a big responsibility, I think. And we know of one case in Israel with what we suspect are hypomorphic variants, and they give a milder phenotype, and I think they escape to our assay. So this will be our control. 
And obviously, you're both running the assay in different labs in different continents. Is that right? Yeah. And I think you're the only people running this assay. Is that correct? I think so. And so with, with assays for rare disease, we acknowledge that this is an important disease to diagnose. It's a treatable disease, but we also want to make sure that families are you know, using the right treatment rather than just having a go and seeing what happens. How can we ensure that there is accessibility to these kind of infrequent but very important assays? Oof, it's difficult, right? Because there are so many rare diseases that if you have to set up all the functional assays at the hospital, that would be incredibly, incredibly difficult. The assay is not a matter of skills. I think it's a matter of commitment. It doesn't require any special skill. I think any most research labs could run the assay for, for doctors. Yeah, I think Santi has it right there. You can do the assay. The thing is, it's going to take some time, a fair expenditure of resources. So what we really need is a reliable biomarker. For instance, is it possible that we could have authenticated patients before they're on therapy and look for potential biomarkers from uh, LCMS analysis of uh, plasma. I mean, to me, that's the sort of thing that, that you might be able to, to get. The problem is, you know, many of these uh, metabolites, intermediaries, are, are either in very, very low quantity or they're labile. And so I'm not sure if that is, you know, a path forward. But to me, that would be one of the, the things. And of course, we have you know, now a number of patients. And as long as we have samples from before therapy and after therapy, so we know which are the authenticated cases, I, you know, I think that could potentially be a path forward. And I think Saskia and I have actually uh, discussed this a, a little bit. And I suppose the other thing is we talk about these cases coming based on a clinical phenotype and then appropriate genetic investigations, perhaps then yielding a, a request for your assay. But the reality of the world we're moving into is that we're increasingly going to get unphenotyped patients going through genomic testing as newborns. And so increasingly, we're going to see patients being referred with, here's a variant, what does it mean? You've shown a pathway here to validate variants in one specific disorder, but is is the work you're doing going to become you know, a routine part of the diagnostic pathway for more conditions? I hope so. I hope that it becomes routine. <laughs> you know, I, I think this is really interesting. And in our paper, we compared the variants that we saw and categorized them as pathogenic, non-pathogenic, and then compared that to the various prediction programs that were out there. And it was a bit startling to see that many of those were not actually helpful and were at variance with ours. And Santi, I think you also looked at even the current alpha missense program, right? Right. Well, I think that there are going to be very important tools coming out in the following years, thanks to AlphaFold and other uh, machine learning algorithms. At the moment, when we compare the predictions from those algorithms with our functional assay, there is a big mismatch. But I think those programs will become better and better. And that will be a very important tool. Of course, it requires that we understand how the protein functions, how it works, to explain why it stops working in the patient. And this is a lot of basic research that needs to be done. So as is often the case of the podcast, it's uh, watch this space. Well, 
It's been a, a, an absolute pleasure listening to you both talking about this. If people listening would like to read the paper, please click the link in the podcast description or go to the journal web pages and search for CAD deficiency. Uh, all that remains is for me to say thank you all for taking part today. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.